Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity again to study, and we ask that your spirit will join us today, that all that we do will be to your honor and glory. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number four in the study guide, the book of Acts. The uh, title is the First Church Leaders. And before we actually get into the material for this week, given the title, First Church Leaders, and the importance of a story in last week's lesson, I wanted to follow up with that story, and that's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We didn't actually talk about that. It was from last week's lesson, but I think it kind of segues into this. And what do you think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira? It's often presented as God punishing. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard it presented that way? Yes. Uh, And uh, does the Bible actually say God punished them for their sin? Does it say that? If you actually allow the Bible to speak for itself, here's what the Bible tells you. They sold a piece of property. They lied about how much they got for it. They were confronted on their lie by Peter with the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, and they died. That's what the Bible says. You all know that, right? So with that, that's kind of just factually what happened. So then people interpret the facts. What does that mean? And I teach my patients this all the time. There are facts of history, and then there are interpretations of facts. See this with my patients all the time. Fact of history. My boyfriend broke up with me. Interpretations of facts. I'm ugly. I'm stupid. I'm unlovable. No one will ever like me. See this all the time. Those interpretations are not accurate to the facts, are they? Mm -hmm. No. People do this all the time. So we have the facts of what's happened in the Bible. Now, what are the possible interpretations, and how can we differentiate which are more likely and less likely? So the first possible interpretation is the common one, that God punished them for sin. How can we with 100% certainty, know that God did not punish them for their sin. That God did not? Did not. With 100% certainty, we can know this is not punishment for sin. How can we know? Because it says they gave up the ghost. Well, they, they gave up the ghost. That doesn't, that's not totally persuasive for me, but, but it's, it's consistent. How about this? What is the punishment for sin? Death. death, death. Eternal. Which death? The death from which there's resurrection or the death from which there's no resurrection? No resurrection. Did they die the death, what the Bible calls the second death, the death which is no resurrection? Are they going to rise again? Yes. So is that the punishment of sin? No. Secondly, is the punishment for sin, whichever way you view it, does it happen before the great white throne judgment or after the great white throne judgment? When does the punishment for sin happen? After the judgment or before? After the judgment, has the great white throne judgment happened in Ananias and Sapphira's day? No. So however you understand it, strong evidence, this is not punishment for sin. Because it's not actually the death that is the punishment. And it has happened before. Judgment Judgment hasn't even happened yet. So it can't be that. Then the other possibilities. It was natural causes. Why should we doubt that their death was simply a case of dying of old age or their body wearing out? Why should we doubt that? Because it's inconsistent with the facts. The facts really don't support that's how people die of natural causes. How about dying from shock? Now, why is this a possibility? Because, there you go, it historically happens. People have been known to have a very shocking event and they have a heart attack and they die. They've also been known through, um, well documented in the science and medical literature, that people can be what they call boned to death. And what's being boned to death? It's when the shaman, the witch doctor, with with their curse bone, puts the curse on the person, waves the bone at them, and they have a shock and they fall over and die. That's well documented. When a great shaman confronts you, it can result in a shocking, psychological, neurogenic, heart-stopping. So that's a possibility. But we don't know. We'd have to interpret it that way. The Bible doesn't say that's what happened, does it? just said they died. And then the last possibility that I could think of, that God was acting to put them to sleep, the first death, as a therapeutic measure to protect the infant church. So it wasn't punishment for sin. It was an excision of a necrotic couple that would have corrupted the church because of love. Now, why is this a possibility? Why, why would we consider this possible? Is there historical evidence that God has done this? 
Yeah, there's many evidences in the Old Testament where God acted to put people in the grave to protect the avenue through which Messiah would come. So this has happened throughout history. And then think what might have happened had Ananias and Sapphira did what they did and not died. What might likely have happened? Might they, after this supposed great donation, have entered into some type of leadership position in the early emerging church? And what might have happened to the early church had leaders had corrupt, greedy characters? So might God have diagnosed or and or, quote, judged that a therapeutic excision of their influence was necessary for the health of the early church? Is that possible? And if that's so, then do you recognize the action of God was not an action of anger, but an action of love? and was designed to heal and protect, not to destroy. Boy, is that the way you typically read Ananias and Sapphira? (laughs) Do you see how how infected we are with the imperial system? That we almost always see it through that that view. Well, I found a Bible commentary, a book book called Acts of the Apostles. And I'll I'll read a couple of paragraphs regarding Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira grieved the Holy Spirit by yielding to feelings of covetousness. They thought they had been too hasty, that they ought to reconsider their decision. They talked the matter over and decided not to fulfill their pledge. They saw, however, that those who who parted with their possessions to supply the needs of the poor brethren were held in high esteem among the believers. Oh, I don't want to give all this, but if I do, people will think better of me. Ooh, I'll probably get a better reputation. Ooh, people will probably think I'm really spiritual. Ooh, I might even be elected to conference president. Get a bunch of likes on Facebook. Get a bunch of likes on Facebook. (laughs) And a shame to have their brethren know that their selfish souls grudged that which they had solemnly dedicated to God. They deliberately decided to sell their property and pretend to give all the proceeds into the general fund, but really keep a large share for themselves. Thus, they would secure their living from the common store and at the same time gain a high esteem of their brethren. God hates hypocrisy and falsehood. Ananias and Sapphira practiced fraud in their dealings with God. They lied to the Holy Spirit and their sin was visited with swift and terrible judgment. Does this say swift and terrible punishment or judgment? So when you hear the word judgment, do you hear the word judgment through human imposed law constructs? Yes. Or do you hear the word judgment through design law? That God judged what they were doing to be unhealthy, judged that it would hurt the church, judged that the most therapeutic thing to do would be to nip it in the bud and protect the spread of the healing remedy. Is that how you hear it? Or do you hear it, they broke the rule and the rules must be punished and God judged that they were due punishment. You see, there are the facts and there are the interpretation of the facts. We'll keep going with this quote from this, one more paragraph from this commentary. Infinite wisdom saw that this signal manifestation of the wrath of God was necessary to guard the young church from becoming demoralized. So first question, what is the wrath of God according to Scripture? Let them know. Exactly right. Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then in verse 24, 26, and 28, therefore God gave them up. Therefore God let them go. Therefore God gave them up. Yes, God let them go. And according to this commentary, he gave them up to reap what they had chosen for what purpose? What was the reason? to punish their sin or to protect the young church. It said, if you you didn't hear it, to guard the young church from becoming demoralized. Keep going with the quote. Their numbers were rapidly increasing. The church would have been endangered if in the rapid increase of converts, men and women had been added who, while professing to serve God, were worshiping mammon. This judgment testified that men cannot deceive God, that he detects the hidden sin of the heart, and that he will not be mocked. It was designed, designed, his action here was designed, as a warning to the church to lead them to avoid pretense and hypocrisy. Is a warning to the living 
the same thing as punishment to the dead. It's not, is it? So God cannot be mocked. What Bible verses pop into your head when you hear that phrase? Any? How about this one? Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature reaps destruction. Why can God not be mocked? What kind of laws do you hear described in Galatians? Design law. law. You reap what you sow. You cannot pretend to give up cigarette smoking, yet keep on smoking and experience good health. You can't mock the system that way. I'm going to get healthier and healthier while I'm secretly smoking. Everybody will see how healthy I get. My, my um, uh, two miles run scores will come down. I will get physiologically better at everything I do because nobody knows I smoke. I only smoke in secret. So what laws are determining the outcome here? The design laws. And who made those laws? Who sustains those laws? The operations of the universe. God does. That's why he cannot be mocked. You can't get away with this stuff. Was this true for Ananias and Sapphira? What does one reap when one chooses to separate themselves from God? Death. Why is it then we don't seem to reap this death instantly? If we do something that's perhaps rebellious against the Lord, because God graciously intervenes to suspend such consequences, giving us more time to reconsider. In Ananias and Sapphira's case, God let them have their choice right then. Because he knew their heart. He knew their heart. And he knew, again, it was for the purpose of protecting the early church, not punishing them. So, any questions about that? Yes. My only thought is that God obviously told Peter or whoever the apostle was that confronted them that, that this had already happened. So there was, it, was already, it was already made known to the, to the believers that this couple had done this. And it seems like... Do you think that God diagnosed them as uncurable and just put them to sleep to wait for the resurrection? Or would it have been, well, why not just... Do you remember our lecture on the whole, this whole question of like Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, and which resurrection are going to come up in? Remember, they are raised to finish their lives. Yes. Why not just excommunicate them, keep them away from the believers, let them keep their money? It would be no different than today trying to come along and suggest that so-and-so has done this, and they say, no, we haven't. It's been a misunderstanding. And then there's this opinion versus that opinion, and he said and she said. And, and then what happens? Where does the focus of the church go at that point? Is it focused on the gospel still? Or how, who's right and who's wrong? And there's divisions that happen. So I don't see any good outcome going that direction at that time for the early church. So Sabbath lesson, it's the entire, I'm gonna, let's read the day here. It says, uh, many converts at Pentecost were Hellenistic Jews, that is, Jews from the Greco-Roman world, who now were living in Jerusalem. Despite being Jews, they were different from the Judean Jews, the Hebrews mentioned in Acts 6.1. In many respects, the most visible difference being that usually they were not acquainted with Aramaic, the language spoken in Judea. There were several other differences too, both cultural and religious. For having been born in foreign countries, they had no roots in Judean Jewish traditions, or at least their roots were not as deep as those in Judean, the Judean, Judean Jews. They were presumably not so much attached to the temple ceremonies and to those aspects of the Mosaic law that were applicable only in the land of Israel. Also, for having spent most of their lives in the Greco-Roman environment and having lived in close contact with Gentiles, they naturally could be more willing to understand the inclusive character of the Christian faith. In fact, it was many Hellenistic believers that God used to to, uh, fulfill the command of bearing witness to the entire world. I think this is reasonable. Uh, This description is a reasonable facts of history, the, the difference there. But what lesson can we draw from that? Could... And here's the question I want to ask you. Could the religious traditions of Judaism have been an obstacle to spreading the gospel? Could people have been more interested in the forms of religion, carrying out the ceremonies in the right way, dressing in the right clothing, washing their hands in the right way, than actually experiencing the renewal of heart and mind to be like Jesus? What about today? Could the traditions of Christianity the forms of religion, the way we practice, be obstacles to actually spreading the gospel. Wendell. It's easier to see the externals than it is the internals. 
internals take time to express. And so it's very easy for us to see the externals and make judgments based on that. God looks on the heart, hands look on the external. But still, instantly, we can make judgments based on external. So that's what we pay attention to. So do you think that some of the Christian externals, the Christian traditions, practices, ceremonies, rituals, can be obstacles to actually spreading the gospel? When I was in Tahiti, they took a tie off of someone and put it over my sports shirt so I could get vespers. Because without the tie, you weren't equipped. The Holy Spirit wouldn't be with you unless you had the tie on. Could people be more interested in dressing the right way? Not wearing jewelry, having a tie maybe, eating the right foods, going to church on the right day, uh, the right method of baptism, than actually healing hearts and minds of people to be like Jesus. Could that happen? Now, does this mean, after we've said this, that there was no godly purpose or benefit to the religious ceremonies of Judaism? Does that mean that? No. There was godly purpose in their institution. Then what happened? What was the problem? Focus. Meaning? Focus meaning what? It became a thing you do rather than a thing you are. Became a thing you do rather than a thing you are? Okay, I like where you're going with that. Could we say that when the object lesson, the ritual, the ceremony, the, the teaching tool becomes more important than the reality to which it is designed to lead people, then we have a problem. It's more important to do the baptism in the right way than people actually have immersion of their hearts and minds in the Holy Spirit. It's more important we go to church on the right day than we actually come to know Jesus as our Savior. In other words, the rituals instead of in the ceremonies and the things designed to bless and benefit us in our journey to back to a, a reconciled relation with God, they actually become obstacles when we forget their purpose. Again, so let's, let's bring it home. Does this mean in Christianity, all these things we have done, our traditions, rituals, and forms, that many of these are not with godly purpose? No, many of them have very good godly purposes. But when they supersede the actual mission of bringing people back to unity with God in heart and mind, we become obstacles to that. That's the problem. Is it not? So like in a marriage, you know, you can do all the right things. You can actually have a wedding. You can show up at night. You know, you can, after work, you can do all the right things. But your heart, if your heart isn't in it, then you're basically roommates. You're not really having a relationship with each other that's growing and active and beneficial, but that's what marriage is meant for. Why is it that the forms of religion, the rituals, the ceremonies, the traditions, the practices can come to supersede the actual mission of bringing people to know Jesus as your Savior? Why is it that can happen? Why? What's the reason? I believe that people look at the law of God as a law of man. And when they do that, they start making laws of, out of the traditions. And therefore, it becomes the law of God. And I agree with you completely. And what is the underlying motive for people to do that? Internal. That, that thing that drives the person to the action. What is driving them? It's fear, guys. It's fear. Fear. Think it through. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. And when fear becomes the motivator, think this through with me. When you're fearful, where does your focus turn? To self. And when you're fearful in a religious or spiritual contest, I'm afraid. What am I afraid for? I'm afraid for my eternal destiny. I'm afraid for my condemnation. I'm afraid for I won't be saved. I'm afraid that I will sin. I'm afraid that I will, will be found wanting in the judgment. I'm afraid. And so when we become afraid, then what do we need? What do we do? Where do we turn? Well, we want to make sure that we can't have a check mark against our name. We want to make sure we do it all right. We want to make sure that our foot is on base so we can't be tagged out. And so we then be make the, the rules and we get very we make up that list and we become very imperial and impose law and we think through that lens because it's all about protecting self. But perfect love casts out all fear. And when our hearts have been renewed to love God and others, our, our focus goes where? To others. And suddenly, to, to glorifying God, 
and to reaching others, to save, to heal, to, to lift them up. And when your focus is there instead of on what's going to happen to me, then it's not about the rules anymore. It's about how I can bring God's healing grace into someone else's life. And suddenly your practice of religion change. Yes? What about those who fear that they're going to disappoint God or fear that they're going to betray God incorrectly? Yep, yep. I think you will often find the same motives at heart. Give me some examples of that. Think about a marriage where your, your primary fear is letting your spouse down, not loving your spouse. My focus, I love them so much, I just want to do everything to make their life better. I want to pour myself on I want to lift them up. I'm afraid I'll, I, I won't be good enough. I'm afraid that they'll, they'll think, uh, you know, my, my hair is receding and turning gray and I'm getting wrinkles and that won't, and I'm afraid that I'm getting a little overweight. I'm afraid that they, that somehow I'll disappoint them by not being what they want me to be. What happens in a relationship like that? Does love grow? So on self. No, I would suggest to you if that becomes the motive in the relation with God, it's going to subtly erode the joy. And then you look for security in other stuff that you can have confidence in. And the security becomes, well, Jesus paid my penalty. I have legal application to my book in heaven. I have my ticket and I'll present it to God, which is the blood of Jesus. And when he sees it, he can't keep me out. All these types of things you hear. Yes. Well, I remember one time, a long time ago, Karen said in a Sabbath school class she was teaching that, you know, she felt like salvation, our salvation, could become a selfish thing. Could become. This is the primary drive behind most of Christian preaching. It really turned my thought around because I thought, you know, it is true. We like go... Get to the flames, you balls. You know I'm headed there. <laughs> you know, I'm good. Yes, and so people say, how, and so how do you know if you're saved? How do you know whether you're saved? And it focuses all about your salvation. And so how about this one? Have you come to know and trust Jesus so much with your life that you could say to him, Lord, I know you're an amazing God, and I love the way you run your universe, and I trust you completely. And if you know the universe would be a better place without me, don't bring me. Hmm. Fix what's broken in me, Lord. Prepare me to be there. But if in some way I persistently refuse your healing and I would be a, a factor that would hurt you and hurt others, I don't want to be there. Boy, there's no stress in that. There's no worry anymore. It frees you from that. But this other thing, which is what's constantly fed people in Christianity, is to become self-focused. It's all about me and what's going to happen to me. Have my sins been paid? One of our primary opponents that oppose our class and, and goes all over the world with little, little cards and things trying to say we teach them, their big objection is this. Do you believe, this is what was asked me, do you believe, Dr. Jennings, when we confess our sins, they're erased out of the record book in heaven so that in the future no one knows the sins we've committed? And I said, I believe God wants to erase sinfulness out of the hearts, minds, and character of his people to restore them to perfect righteousness and holiness and in and, and, and unity with God, but he is not going to erase history. And the comment was, see, you don't believe the Bible. <laughs> and, and this is why they put, because their security, they live in fear, fear of that no one can love them if they know their secret sin. There's some sin that they're terrified when they get to heaven that will be open and people will know. And if people know, then they won't be loved and they'll be rejected. And so it's all fear-based, self-based religion. It's not a love-based religion. Like Moses said, wipe me out of the book and save them. He got to that point with the Israelites that he was willing to lose his eternal salvation on their behalf. Yeah, exactly right. Sunday's lesson uh, points out that in Acts 6, the Greek-speaking Jews complained that their widows weren't, were being neglected in the dis distribution of resources. So if you were leading the church and people started complaining that uh, this group was not being taken care of, what, how would you have handled it? How would you resolve the complaint? How did the apostles handle it? Why did the apostles recommend this, this direction rather than doing it themselves? Share the wealth. Not, not share the wealth. I mean, I know what you mean by that, yes. Uh, <laughs> meaning, the apostles had their own purpose and mission. And what was the apostles' purpose and mission? <laughs> to spread the gospel, the, the good news, their own personal testimony, experience, their knowledge and insight of the kingdom of God. What would have happened if they had been bogged down with just administrative duties, unloading trucks, carrying stuff into the warehouse, um, dividing it up into distributable packages, which, which is perfectly good stuff to do, but if the apostles are doing that, what are they not doing? 
So do you think that this whole little division arose uh, as an intrigue of the devil to try and get the apostles to focus on stuff they shouldn't focus on? Same thing happened with Moses leading the children of Israel. But it could, be, well, it could be saying something about the hearts of the people in general that they were excluding these things <laughs> instead of including them. I mean, why were the widows of these folks being neglected? Yeah, I don't think we have insight into that. Uh, I think the implication is it was because there were culturally in, in, uh, cultural barriers and language barriers uh, going on, not necessarily because as soon as they brought it to the attention, it was, they were quite, there was a big fight over it. It was, oh, wow, okay. It may have been more of a language barrier, cultural barrier, than an actual refusal or heart against it. Because they... One thing to me in this lesson that I never realized was how much the culture affected the, the church. Unbelievable. Were the selecting of the seven individuals to organize the distribution of the subsistence fund, was that the same thing as setting up a hierarchical church administration and governance? Did they get some ecclesiastical authority over the rest of the church in this? In fact, where did the authority come from for these seven to do that? Did it come from the apostles? There you go. Who chose them for the office? The, the actual congregation. So it was organic, recognizing from the membership that these individuals had the traits of character to fulfill the office or task okay, for the, that was being assigned. And that's where it came from. So this was not an organization. And this is important because this is why our ministry has some administrative help. I, I, uh, and some of you, I've gotten some emails, have been frustrated Francesca's been out on maternity leave and she won't be coming back till the 1st of August. And so um, I've been you know, trying to do this work as well as my office, as well as trying to do the administrative stuff. And some of the responses maybe are a little slower than they would have otherwise. Be, be patient with me. So I haven't necessarily got everything mailed out and responded very, very quickly uh, because I don't want to be too distracted from maybe the other things we're doing like the, the paraphrase and so forth. <laughs> right okay so monday's lesson we're going to read out of acts 6 8 through 15 stephen a man whose character radiated the grace and beauty of god and who was filled with the power from heaven, performed many miracles and incredible wonders among the people. But Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia, were, who were members of the synagogue of free men, opposed him. They tried to debate with Stephen, but their arguments couldn't stand against his wisdom or the spirit who empowered his words. So they bribed some men to slander him. They said, we heard Stephen teaches lies about Moses and God. Uh, by doing this, they agitated the people, church leaders and theologians who preferred the legal theology. These people arrested Stephen and brought him before the Jewish high court. They um, brought in their bribed witnesses to, who perjured themselves by saying, this man is always speaking against the temple and God's written law. We even heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy this building and do away with what Moses taught us. All those sitting in the courtroom turned and looked closely at Stephen, and they saw his face radiating like that of an angel. So what is the basis of their allegations against Stephen? Are they alleging that he was trying to turn people into criminals? He's starting a, a, a mafia ring, prostitution ring, a thievery ring. Uh, are they alleging that he's doing you know, immoral and illegal and criminal activities? Tradition. Are they alleging he was teaching people that God doesn't exist, that we should reject the idea of God and believe in evolution? Are they alleging that Stephen was denying that Moses was God's man for his time, called by God to deliver Israel? Are they alleging that? So they're accusing Stephen of? He said, what did you say, Wendell? Tradition. So of, of what, what regard to tradition? Tradition of how you, you, you function, how you practice. They're accusing him of supporting that tradition. Right. Accusing him. Of supporting that tradition. Destroying him. Oh, destroy. There we go. Okay. They're, they're accusing him of undermining or destroying their tradition. There we go. Okay. So what was Stephen teaching that they didn't like? Well, I think the implication was that they were guilty of something. How, how was well, the it? The temple ceremonies were no longer needed. The people didn't like that. Did they view the temple ceremonies and all their Old Testament uh, instructions out of Leviticus and other places as symbolic 
theater, acting out a larger reality to lead them towards a knowledge of God in Christ? Did, did they view it that way? Or did they view it as that these things in themselves had some inherent value that were required in order for us to be right with God? Yes. Okay, that's called imposed law thinking. We've got to keep the rules. If you don't keep the rules, then you're in legal trouble with the ruling authority rather than, well, doing the ritual really is important as long as you have in your heart what the ritual is teaching. They were very concrete in their thinking. Now, what would happen today, do you think, in our church? Uh, I guess I should. Do we have similar conflicts in the church today? And what would happen in the church today if, say, we were to teach something like this? The Ten Commandments have not always been in existence. They, they're not eternal. They were added sometime after the sin of, of man. If we were to teach something like that, what do you think would happen? Do you think people would go, well, that's true? <laughs> or do you think people might rise up and accuse us, just like they did Stephen, of denying the law of God and denying what God, uh, God's purpose and design? Yeah. So what is the truth? Have the Ten Commandments always existed or were they added later? And let's look at the evidence of this. This is a quote out of, uh, from, from a book called Maranatha, page 79. See if you agree with this quote. But in heaven, service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening to something unthought of. Mm. Do you agree with that? That in heaven prior to Satan's rebellion, the angels never thought about law. Okay, if that's true, if you agree that that's true, what kind of law can that only be? Law of love. Okay, design law. Exactly, design law. You cannot have imposed rules without the populace who is being governed by those rules knowing about them. Right. And expect any type of obedience or compliance. When Isaac Newton wrote down his law of gravity, discovered the law of gravity, wrote it down on paper, went to people and said, hey, here's the formula for the law of gravity, what do you think people said? <laughs> you know what? I never thought that was a law. I just thought that's how things work. Never occurred to me there was a law about that. It was unthought of. That's how design law works. Can, and then when you think about design laws, like the law of gravity, law of physics, can you actually fully understand, appreciate them from a textbook seeing their formulas written down? No. Can the law of love, God's design law, be fully comprehended, written on stone? No. no. Where, according to Scripture, is God's law supposed to be written? In the hearts. In the hearts and minds. Why is it supposed to be written in the hearts and minds of living beings? Why? To change There you go. There you go. It is the living law. It is the law upon which life is designed to operate, and it cannot be understood on stone. It can only be understood when operational in a living being. And thus, we are the tabernacle. We are the sanctuary. We are the place that God wrote his design, wrote his character, wrote his law, wrote his protocols for living. We are to be the glorification of God and how we live our lives in harmony with him. The law is to be written here. This is the design. Well, then why did God put it on stone? Why did God write a list of 10 on stone? Let's put it that way. Well, after Adam sinned, was the law of God still written in the heart? of human beings. It was not. It wasn't in the heart anymore. What was written in the heart instead? Survival drive, fear and selfishness, me first. And you see the whole world being corrupted by this. So a different law, what Paul calls the law of sin and death, is written in the hearts of human beings. So God writes it on a table of stone for what purpose? It's an MRI of the soul. That's what it is. Look in the law and diagnose yourself, basically. See what's wrong. Expose the defects. Now, when you go in an MRI and, you, and the MRI identifies a tumor in your body, does the MRI put the tumor there? <laughs> no, the law doesn't put the defects there. Uh, when you go in the MRI and, you, and, there is a, and it finds a tumor in your body, does the MRI fix it? Do anything to bring healing to you at all? The Ten Commandments fix nothing. They bring healing to nobody. They're simply a diagnostic instrument to bring us to Christ, who is our source of salvation, who is our healer, who is our savior. That's their purpose. Um, did the angels in heaven who followed Satan sin? 
And we're still reasoning out the question, was the Ten Commandments always in existence? Did the angels in heaven who followed Satan sin? Yes. Did, does this mean they broke the law? Yes, it is. What law? Was it the Ten Commandments? No. Did the angels in heaven have a law about not committing adultery or honoring their mothers and fathers? No. Was there an, a building in heaven that had a little wooden box covered in gold with little angels on top, and inside that box was ten rules written on stone that the angels would go and check and reference? How many of you believe that that's what's in heaven now? How many of you were taught something like that? Yeah, Russell? Back to the writing of stone. Do you think it might be some symbolism there of writing it on the stone or the stony heart initially being put on stone? I'll write my law on a stony heart and then transform it into a heart of flesh. <coughs> well, I think the, uh, I think the metaphor... I think it was a practical matter of stone's going to last. Well, I think if, uh, if you actually look at the stone it was written on, it was written on sapphire. That's why in the Jewish colors and symbols, there's always blue, the blue sapphire. And the blue always represents the law of God, and it represents the purity of God's law. And so it was written on sapphire, which is uh, God's eternal purity and law. But I will, I will give you the references for that next week. I'll try to remember to do that. Yes, Wendell? When children are babies and they're learning the law, they start something that uh, some people call dropsy in which they're learning gravity. They keep dropping things over and over and over again. And they're learning other things besides gravity, but they're learning gravity. There's natural laws that God has given us. We have to learn, and we should learn it in a constructive, productive, non-punitive way. I like that. And I want to follow up with what Russell said, because as I'm thinking about what you're saying, I think you might have some merit there. Because if you look at the metaphor of the ark, the ark, the, 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 the lid of the ark represents Christ. The Shekinah represents the Father. The angels represent the unfallen host. And the box, which was uh, porous wood covered in gold, represents the sinners of earth, our hearts, that have been restored to righteousness. And three things went in the box. The first thing that went in the box was the manna. And Jesus said, of course, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of heaven that has come down. And so the first thing that us sinners have to do is we have to partake of Jesus. And as we partake of the bread of life of Jesus, our hearts are one from, from distrust to trust as, the, as we impart, impart, embark and take in the truth. Okay? And once we're one from distrust to trust by partaking of Jesus, we open the heart, and then he writes his law on our hearts and minds. And, and, that, and that was the next thing that went in the ark was the written law. Okay, representing our hearts, perhaps of stone, having been the law written on it. And then we which were dead in our trespasses and sin, according to Scripture, we begin to bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And then the last thing that went in the ark was Aaron's rod that budded, a dead stick that now buds and brings forth life. And so you have this metaphorical teaching that partaking of Christ wins us to trust, we open the heart, he restores his design law in us, and we who are dead in sin become uh, righteous and come to life bringing forth the, the peaceable fruits of righteousness. I think it's a, a beautiful metaphor. So I like what you said about that. Um, back to the question, what, the Sabbath, what about the Sabbath? When was it created? When? Creation. Were angels in existence before the Sabbath was created? According to Job 38, they sang together for joy when the earth was made. Okay? So if you put all those things together, the Ten Commandments, as we see them, this distillation for human need, did not exist prior to human sin. They were added later. And so this is a quick little comment out of a book called Story of Redemption, page 145. The law of God existed before man was created. Why might some jump on that and go, oh, oh, oh see, Ten Commandments existed. The law existed. You're denying it. You're a denier. Did it say the Ten Commandments existed? It didn't, but that's what some people do. They read and they, because they equate the law of God with the Ten Commandments, and in their mind, they're synonymous, but they're not. I'll keep reading. The angels were governed by it. Satan fell because he transgressed the principles of God's government. After Adam and Eve were created, God made known to them his law. It was not then written, but was rehearsed to them by Jehovah. The Sabbath of the fourth commandment was instituted in Eden. What's instituted mean? And next sentence. After God had made the world, he create, created man upon it and created man upon it. After he made the world and created man upon the earth, he made the Sabbath for man. What does made mean? So again, if you believe this author in this description, the Sabbath itself didn't exist until the creation of earth, which was sometime after the angels in heaven had been created and their rebellion started. And would there be a Sabbath commandment for a Sabbath that doesn't even exist yet? Okay? The Ten Commandments, guys, were added because of human need. After Adam sinned uh, and fall, nothing was taken from the law. 
of God. The principles of the Ten Commandments existed before the fall and were of a character suited to the condition of the holy order of beings. After the fall, the principles of those precepts were not changed, but additional precepts were given to meet man in his fallen state. So, and then the law, according uh, in Galatians, that Paul says was added, this commentator says that it's especially speaking of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, that was added to bring us to Christ. So what would it mean today if we present the idea that God's law is design law and that humans are out of harmony with God's design and in a terminal condition and that God works through Christ to heal and restore? And in that understanding, we print out the Ten Commandments were added as a diagnostic instrument for us, but not as a remedy. And when God has his way in his life and heals us, the purpose of the Ten Commandments become obsolete because we're restored to harmony with God. And then some people would stand up and accuse us of undermining the law of God. What would that mean? It means those who oppose what we're teaching oppose the creator God and his design law just as they opposed Stephen 2,000 years ago. Now, when I say that, let me say this. I'm not suggesting that people who do that are, are eternally lost. I suspect there are many that are just like Saul of Tarsus who stood there while they stoned Stephen. And Saul was wrong, and he admits he was wrong then. His mindset was wrong, but his heart was still open to come to the truth. And he was converted to the truth, and he became a great man of God. I think there are many people who oppose what we're teaching who are like Saul of Tarsus, who are sincere, but they're sincerely believing something they were taught since childhood and so deeply embedded in their thinking, they haven't actually seen a better way yet. Wednesday's lesson says, while Stephen stood before the Jewish leadership discharging God's case against them, Jesus was standing in the heavenly court, that is, in the heavenly sanctuary next to the Father, an indication that the judgment on earth was but an expression of the real judgment that was taking place in, in heaven. God would judge the false teachers and the leaders of Israel. I got to tell you, I have no idea where they could even get this from. I thought and thought, where could they even get this idea? Uh, there's no, is there any scripture that supports such an idea? Is there any Ellen White statement? This is not, this is fantasy. This is just made up stuff. Can anybody tell me anywhere where there's a statement in scripture or an inspired reference that says, when Stephen is accusing these people, Jesus was, was acting in heaven to accuse as well? Oh, I, I just, I'm just complete. I just completely lost on me. It is diagnostic. In fact, we have the opposite. We do have the truth that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, but we don't have any evidence that Jesus is acting in a judicial manner to condemn people on earth. This is a lie of the imposed law. In fact, if you read Hebrews chapter 10, you have just the opposite. Because of Jesus and what he's done, he's opened us a new and living way into the presence of the Father, and he's, he is reconciling us to the Father. He's not prosecuting against us. Does the picture, though, presented in the lesson of Jesus standing in heaven to find fault in order to condemn, in order to prosecute, make you trust God more? Does it increase your love? What impact, if you believe it to be true, does it have? Does it make you more fearful, more distrusting, to seek greater protection from God, if you believe that's true? Does it make you more self-focused, more worried about doing the wrong thing and then having the prosecutor in heaven prosecute you for it? Who do you think's behind such a teaching? The universe we got in the fighting is now. And it might make people feel better to hope that God would play big brother and hurt somebody and hurt them. Like I don't like you, I don't like the way you treated me, so you know. That's exactly right. And that's all based again on the fear based drive, not the love based drive. Talks about salvation. It says in the next paragraph that um uh, the Jews were the mediator, mediated through, says uh, salvation would no longer be mediated through national Israel as, uh, as promised to Abraham. This mediated, how is that true and how is it not true? It's true in that Jesus said to the woman in Samaria, Samaritan woman, woman at the well, the salvation is of the Jews, that through the Jewish line, the Savior would come. So it's true in that way. It's not true that you had to be a member of Israel to actually be saved. So it's, that's, that's not true if it means that. Thursday's lesson, um, and it talks about in Thursday's lesson about the unexpected uh, conversions uh, were, were uh, a difficulty for the apostles. They had to come to terms with the non-Jewish people. You remember Peter's vision of uh, all the animals on the sheet and everything, and he had to be educated to accept people who didn't come from a Jewish background and practice Jewish traditions. So what does it mean that the apostles had to be convinced that non-Jews were to be accepted as full members of the body of Christ? What does that mean? Doesn't it mean that the apostles didn't know everything? 
that they still had errors in their understanding? That even after their time with Jesus, after their conversion, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, they still had ideas in their head, in their comprehension, that were not right. Get your mind around the implications here, guys. Does the fact that they had errors in their understanding mean they were no longer inspired by God? Or were they still inspired? Can a person today be inspired by God and still have errors in their understanding? Could some other human besides the apostles have written messages from God but not be right in everything that they thought or wrote? Many in the Seventh-day Adventist church believe Ellen White was inspired by God with prophetic insights. Any evidence that she had errors in her understanding and that she grew and gave up some of her previous ideas after this supposed inspiration began. Close the door. Her first vision, for those who don't know any of the history, was in 1844. Well, she didn't start keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath question for the Adventist people that were kind of formulating started being studied around 1848, 1850. It wasn't until 1855 that Sabbath keeping was understood to begin at sunset Friday instead of at 6 p.m. on Friday. The great controversy theme that she didn't come up with that and start developing that idea until 1858. Health reform didn't start until 1863. Righteousness by faith message. Rather than keeping the law, we have righteousness by trusting God who restores and, and recreates us into righteousness. That didn't happen until 1888. And after 1888, she wrote some books you might have heard of. Steps to Christ, 1892, which the church did not publish. She published directly. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, 1896. Desire of Ages, 1898. Christ Object Lessons, 1900. Education, 1903. Ministry of Healing, 1905. Tell you, you read all those books, you know what you're going to find? Design law. Design law. Prior to that, you're going to find imposed law. To a great degree, you're going to find imposed law. Only an infinite God is infinite. All other beings, including, including sinless angels are finite and do not possess all truth, all understanding, all wisdom, all knowledge, all awareness, all... They don't. Angels had to learn. It says in Scripture, the angels long to look into these things. Why do they long to look into it? They know it. Do you guys long to, to take um, you know, math that teaches you 2 plus 2? <laughs> you don't long for that. You know it. They long to look into these because they don't know it. Only God is infinite. All other beings are finite. So the point I'm trying to make here, guys, whether you're reading Scripture or any other person's writings, think for yourself. Mm -hmm. You have your own mind, your own individuality, your own comprehension, your own understanding, and you're not to surrender your thinking to somebody else. Do you agree with that? Yes. But how about when somebody says, but my Bible says, then what do you do? Where does the Bible say it? Where does the Bible say it? And you can take one verse and run in a totally wrong place with it. God, God would protect. So, so, what method do we have to protect that? Well, we have a whole lot of verses to go by for one thing, and then we have the direction of the Holy Spirit. Should we ask for that instead of being critical? I like where Russell's going. So, so, so first, yes, what you said. We compare scripture with scripture. So we need to find a continuity where the Scripture is always harmonizing with itself and we don't find contradictions. Uh, we have to have the harmony. But then Scripture has to be harmonized with science. God's design laws of science and nature and how life actually works called experience. And when all three harmonize, then we can have harmony. And now we're going to do something special. Now we have the opportunity for a baby dedication. <laughs> This is Madeline Rose Slocum, who is the daughter of Tamara and Bobby. This is their sister, JJ, Jacqueline Jade. And for those who don't know who Tamara is, Tamara is Dean and Zoe Scott's daughter. Dean, for those who don't know who Dean is, uh, uh, Dean is our, uh, um, one of our board members. He's the person who's actually probably done more to reach people with this message than I have because I just do the de de development of materials. Dean is our IT guy who develops the website and who does all the back-end stuff to keep open the avenues of communication. So Dean is critical to this. And, so, and then Tamara's been involved from the beginning. She helped develop our logo 
She uh, has great creative skills, and she, for those of you who remember the flyer that came out on the sanctuary, she developed the graphics for that, and we, we have the new DVD sets that come out um, that will be available very soon. They're being production right now. She developed the graphics for that. So she's been very helpful to our cause. And so now they, they've asked that we have a dedication for Madeline Rose. And so the word dedicate means to consecrate or to act, uh, the act of setting apart people for God's service. In the Old Testament, we see that Hannah brought Samuel to be dedicated to God. In the New Testament, we see that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be dedicated to God. So bringing a child before the Lord, though, is not a magic formula to keep them from ever experiencing any difficulties or pain. It doesn't actually guarantee that they themselves will later choose. What it really is is about the parents choosing to commit themselves to raise the child in a godly way and teach them about God and about the love of Christ. Parents stand in the place of God to their small children. The, parent, the child invests you guys with omnipotent powers. If you say something, that's the way it is. They don't question it at that age. And so it's not just what you teach them. It's not just what you feed them. It's not just what you let them watch, but it's how you treat each other and how you run your home. They're assimilating and bringing that all into their hearts. And so you guys are committing yourselves today to practice and apply godly methods in the way you run your home. Bobby and Tamara, as parents, you are publicly acknowledging your personal relationship with Jesus Christ that it, that it is your decision to raise Madeline Rose as a child of God, to know him, to come to understand him and his methods and to lead her in her own personal love and trust relation with Jesus Christ. Do you accept this responsibility? I do. Okay. The Bible uses many metaphors and symbols to try to help us understand and experience uh, healing from sin. One of the Bible symbols of perfection is gold. That's why the Old Testament was covered in gold, the, the, the ark was covered in gold, the altar was covered in gold. And we're told to buy the gold tried in fire from Jesus. And as Madeline uh, Rose uh, grows up, I want you to remind her that she is a precious child of God who is to be covered in gold. And as a reminder for you to teach her as she grows, I have this for you guys. Okay, A a gold cover rose. And as she grows, and you can teach her that that's a symbolic reference to her. She's the rose and the gold is Christ who will fill her and purify her. If the family would like to come up, we'll have a prayer of dedication. Our gracious Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for life and thank you for Madeline Rose and we thank you for Bobby and Tamara and their love for you and their commitment to raise Madeline in harmony with your methods and principles. We ask that throughout this journey that you will send your angels and spirit to stand by them and to give them wisdom and give them patience and give them insight. And we ask that you will uh, walk with Madeline every day of her life, that she will come to know you and and become one of your best friends and, and, and reveal you in all that she does. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.